0: Happy Monday to you. Well, I hope it's going to be a happy Monday for us and baseball fans. We're all one and one inclusive today as we've come down to deadline day. Will the baseball season start on time? I've always been optimistic. I'm an optimist by nature. I think things will get done, but there is shreds of pessimism coming into my body Uh, Thinking it may not get done today, but I still think we'll play a 162-game schedule. I think the owners don't want to alienate the players by reducing the amount of pay they'll get during the regular season and play the full 162. I just think maybe spring training will be shortened, maybe another week or so. If they don't get it done today, but I think by the end of this week, uh, we'll have a settlement. Baseball has to get its act together. It's no longer the kingfish in the sea anymore. All sports are year-round. And people really won't miss baseball except for maybe July or August uh, when there are no other sports going on. And to be honest with you, when July and August do come around, people do find other alternatives because the weather is so nice in all 50 states that they can find other alternatives besides baseball. So baseball needs to get its act together. Uh, We're coming down to the crunch time here. Uh, It looks like there's only a few issues from what I'm hearing. Uh, The luxury tax or the CBT or uh, whatever you want to call it, it's time to get down to the nitty-gritty. A lot of people are saying that they're scared of Steve Cohen. That's why they want to have a lower luxury tax. Uh, They don't want to give in to the players. Their ego, the owner's ego, is saying we need to win another round of negotiations before signing another contract. So we'll see what happens. Uh, I guess the highlight of the week is seeing Max Scherzer getting in and out of his Porsche every day. That's about the extent of what we've been saying baseball-wise. But we'll see what happens. I'm still optimistic, and hopefully by the time we do the next podcast, which probably be tomorrow if they resolve this, because then we'll be back in the groove, the New York Mets groove. Yes, just like they play after every New York Mets victory, back in the New York groove. I do hope we're back in the New York groove tomorrow and up here every day talking serious Mets baseball. Not about these labor negotiations. Not about all the other crap we have to hear every day. Not about how hearing uh, Rob Manford is optimistic. We need to get this done. We meaning baseball in general. So I don't know how you guys feel. uh, But I'm ready. And I think baseball, if they're smart, knows we're ready. And let's get this thing going. A lot's happened since our last podcast. Uh, Marcus Stroman Started shooting off his mouth. I'm not going to go into details. You know, one side calling, well, him specifically calling the Mets all kind of names and uh, giving all kind of accusations. Well, my theory on that is if you had a problem last year, say something last year. Don't wait until you sign with the Cubs. Hell, if the Mets offered him enough money, this would have all been swept under the rug. Uh, I just don't get it why people have to be bitter after they left. They got the best jobs in the world, the best paying jobs in the world, and yet they're still bitter. Go figure. But we'll see what happens. Uh, You know, Marcus Stroman is water under the bridge as far as I'm concerned. So let's move on. Let's get the games going. And Marcus Stroman will just be a trivia question in our uh, Facebook group one day. Now, the Mets did make a little bit of history. They hired Elizabeth Ben as director of Major League Ops, and some are calling it a historic move. And it was Billy Eppor's first front office hire as Med Journal manager. Uh, and she is now the director of Major League Operations. While the Mets have other women working in baseball operations, Ben has become the department's highest ranking female in club history. Uh, she spent the past four plus years working at Major League Baseball, starting at U- starting as a youth programs and labor relations intern and working her way to her most recent position as senior coordinator of baseball operations which she'd held since february 2020 according to her linkedin page she also worked as coordinator of labor relations diversity inclusion and baseball development with mlb she is from canada and she owns a master's degree in philosophy from columbia university i guess when you work in baseball you have to be philosophical at times and has been an adjunct lecturer at Lehman College since 2016, and she spent time as a baseball instructor with the Blue Jays in 2015. She was a pitcher herself, having played in a women's league in Canada, and since 2016, the amateur New York City Metro Baseball League, where she was the first woman to play in that league. Ben also played first base for the softball team at the University of Toronto, where she earned her bachelor's in philosophy. She also was a coaching assistant for high school and middle school baseball and softball programs at Dream, formerly the Harlem RBI program. Eppor was hired as Met GM in November after quite a few other candidates were considered. And uh, the team's assistant general managers, Brian Alderson, uh, Ian Levine, and Ben Zausmer were all promoted within. Zausmer was bumped up after Eppor's arrival. Ben could function as a, another assistant GM with the duties of her role-running the gamut from roster and payroll to rules to compliance. She is the second notable woman hired by the Mets this offseason. Gretchen O'Coin in a minor league role was brought in as the first on-field female coach in Met history. The Mets, before choosing Eppler, also requested interviews with Red Sox assistant GM Raquel Ferreira, and I thought she was going to have a good shot at it, but it looks like she wasn't interested and we're interested in talking to Yankee assistant GM, Gene Afterman. Ben is also part of a growing number of women rising to prominent roles in baseball. As we all know, Kim Ng of the Marlins became the first female GM in MLB history. Speaking of the Marlins, how about that shakeup today? Derek Jeter is leaving the organization, divesting himself totally from the Marlins. So we'll see what transpires there. Now, the Giants' Elisa Nacken became the first full-time women's coach in MLB history in 2020. And this season, the Yankees' Rachel Balkovic will become the first female to manage an MLB-affiliated minor league team. So a lot's been happening for women in baseball, and that's encouraging to see. And we'll see what transpires with the Mets and uh, their latest hire. Should be fun to watch. Now what's been happening with that Met oldtimers? There, it seems like more and more oldtimers are starting to throw their name in the hat to be picked for not to be picked, but to participate in the big event. I'm really looking forward to that. So goddamn it, solve this baseball labor strife! Uh, the other day, I watched the Zoom call with Billy Wagner, Howard Johnson, Ken McKenzie. And it was quite entertaining. So there's Mets from all different eras right there. Wagner from the uh, early two thousands. Uh, Howard Johnson, uh, I should say late 2000s with Wagner because he pitched at City Field, Hojo from the Mets championship team, and he was one of the last remaining faces from that uh, great team of 86 into the 90s, and Ken McKenzie, an original Met. Now, Wagner was the Met closer from 2006 to 2009, and he received 51% of the vote on the most recent Hall of Fame ballot and has three opportunities at enshrinement remaining. And if there is justice in the world Billy Wagner will be a Hall of Famer. He was so dominant. I actually think he was more dominant than Mariano Rivera. But Mariano Rivera's got the bling in the rings and the Yankee uh, pedigree. So I don't think Billy Wagner's getting the attention he deserves. And of course, a uh, player needs 75% of vote for induction by the Baseball Writers Association of America. But candidates like Wagner at 51% continually climb up. So there's a shot he'll get in. Might be the last year. But uh, he is trending in the right way, and they have a lot of good people who are saying a lot of nice things about Wagner. Now, as we all recall that, Wagner's debut came with the Astros against the Mets in 1995. Uh, and Wagner faced Rico Bronia, who nearly homered against him. But Wagner said, who cared? It was my major league debut in Australia as hard as possible, and plus at that point. throwing strikes so everybody he was excited. Now, Hojo, who played for the Mets' last World Series championship-winning team in 86, has his own memories of Shea Stadium. He says, I remember that stadium being massive, and it shook when the people were really riled up. In the World Series, it was incredible what was going on during that Game 6 especially, just a loud ballpark. Not so much anymore do you hear the airplanes crossing. I think that was a big deal back in the day. Among Johnson's notable accomplishments with the Mets was three times reaching 30 homers and 30 stolen bases in the same season. I'm not sure if you're going to see that that often because a stolen base is almost a all start. But Hojo did steal a career-high 41 bases in 1989. He was never really the fastest guy in the world, but he was quick. And he was always looking to get on base. He had a good eye at the plate, not necessarily for batting average, but he always tried to steal, and he always had that base running instinct in him. Uh, and it seemed like whenever he was on, he wanted to get that extra base. Now, Ken McKenzie was an original Met. He joined the franchise at in its inception in 62. He managed a winning record, believe it or not, a five and four for a team that lost 120 games. And McKenzie even said, we didn't have an infield, that we got very close to ground ball, so they didn't make a lot of errors. There you go. Can't make errors when you can't get to the ball. Now it's gonna be a doozy of an all timers day. The Mets announced a list of attendees that includes Robin Ventura, John Matlack, Swoboda, Daniel Murphy, and Mike and Mike Piazza also announced he's coming back. The one guy I want to see personally is David Wright. It, place will rock when David comes back. But we'll see. That could be a surprise in the waiting. Now it's time to celebrate those Mets born on this date. Happy birthday to Tom Spencer, former coach, born in 1951. And happy birthday to Brian Bannister, born on this date, 1981, pitcher for the Mets. Unfortunately, on this date, Tom Sturtevant died in 2009. As far as the big transactions that happened on this day, well, Dave Kingman was purchased from the Mets, uh, from the Giants, I should say, on this date in 1975. And his homers have become part of Mets legend and folklore. Now, on this date, the Mets traded... Steve Hendu Henderson to the Cubs for Dave Kingman. Believe it or not, we got Kingman again on this day in 1981. Mike Henderson, uh, a lot of pressure on him when he came. He was supposed to be the superstar in that met trade, him and Dan Norman. Uh, but he had a decent bat, and uh, I enjoyed watching him play. Not necessarily the best defensive player out there, but back in those days, we didn't have much to cheer for. and Henderson was one of the guys I was cheering for. Now, the Mets signed free agent Pedro Feliciano on this date in 2006. Now, on this date, we lost Jose Uribe uh, as Cleveland signed him from the Mets as a free agent on this date in 2016. Now, as I mentioned, it's former Mets coach Tom Spencer's birthday. Yes, Tom was a Mets coach for the Mets in 1991. He had a brief spell in the major leagues. He played for the White Sox in 78 and, uh, he was known as a very funny and very intelligent coach. Uh, he, he's always uh, joking around, according to Met Folklore. Uh, he was with us for 91, so once a Met, always a Met. So happy birthday to Tom Spencer. Also celebrating a birthday today, Brian Bannister. Who remembers that 2016 2016? There's a little tongue twister for you, folks, that gave us Mets fans so much thrills and happiness. Well, Brian Bannister was a part of that team. He only pitched in eight games for the Mets, 38 innings, started six games, went two and one with a 4.26 ERA. That was his only year with the Mets. Uh, He went to Kansas City, uh, got a lot of innings, 667 innings in four years from 2007 through 2010 with the Royals. So uh, Brian Bannister uh, had some notoriety as a baseball player. Uh, It's his birthday today. He wore number 40 with the Mets. Uh, But Brian Bannister these days is on to bigger and better things. He is now a well-respected pitching coach and pitching guru. Uh, And in December of 2019, His title with the Giants is Director of Pitching, and he is listed as a member of a team's uniformed coaching staff. So he oversees the whole Giant pitching staff, and they did quite well last year. So kudos to Brian Bannister on a job well done last year, as the Giants had the best record in baseball, and him overseeing the uh, pitching staff had a lot to do with that. Now today, since there's not much going on, let's look back at Jeff Torborg. One of the uh, forgotten managers of the Mets during their lean years in 1992 to 1993. Now, Torborg was a Jersey boy. He was born in Plainfield, New Jersey, and attended Westfield High School. And he had turned, attended RU, Rutgers University. Oorah! In 63, he was an All-American baseball player. He set a school record, NCAA record, batting an incredible 537. Only two other college players have ever hit for a higher batting average. Torborg also set Rutgers school records for slugging. Now, the Rutgers Knights, Scarlet Knights, when he played, posted a 741 winning percentage when Torborg was there. He was the man. In 1992, he became the first baseball player to have his uniform number retired by his school as he entered into the Rutgers Olympic Sports Hall of Fame. In '63, he was signed by the Dodgers as an amateur free agent. He spent 64 games at Double A Albuquerque in '63 before making the Los Angeles Dodgers team the next year. Throughout the rest of the '60s, he would be the Dodgers' backup catch- catcher, first to Johnny Roseboro, then to Tom Haller. Hower, I should say. Torborg was never the same hitter in the majors like he was in college, but he was a pretty damn good defensive catcher. Now, how about those no-hitters he caught? Torborg has the honor of catching three career no-hitters from some of the best pitchers of his era. September 9, 1965, he caught Sandy Koufax's perfect game against the Cubs at Dodger Stadium. In that game, Koufax struck out 14 Cub batters. Torborg was 0-3 at the plate that night. Five years later, on July 20, 1970, he was behind the plate catching Dodgers pitcher Bob Sing Bob Bill Singers Ooh, tongue tied again. Bill, Sing, Bill Singers no hitter against the Philadelphia Phillies. Singer struck out 10 batters that night in a 5-0 Dodger win at Dodger Stadium. Now in Torborg's 7 seasons in Los Angeles he threw only out 40 he threw out I should say 40% of would be base stealers in four straight years from 66 to 69. In 67 is 51% of caught stealings was third best in the National League. His best hitting year was 65 when he hit two hundred forty with three homers and 13 RBIs and 158 at-bats. In March 1971, the Crosstown Angels purchased his contract. Torborg would spend three seasons playing in the Orange County. He was the Halo's main catcher in 73 when he batted two hundred twenty with one homer and 18 RBIs and 102 games played. Now get this. Remember, he caught Colfax's perfect game. Well, May 15th, that season of 71, he was behind the plate and caught Nolan Ryan's third no-hitter. He caught his third no-hitter, which was Nolan Ryan's first no-hitter. And Ryan would throw seven no-hitters. That night in Kansas City, Ryan struck out 12 Royals as well. After the 73 season, Torborg switched to a coaching position, fitting, fishing, finishing his 10-year playing career batting 214 with 297 hits, 8 homers, 42 doubles, and 101 RBIs in 574 games. Behind the plate in 599 games, he threw out 36% of would-be Steelers, posting a 990 fielding percentage. Now, after three years of coaching with Cleveland, Torborg got his first managerial position. He replaced Frank Robinson. Remember, Frank was the first black manager, finishing fifth that year. The Indians then fell to last place in the next two seasons. He was dismissed in late 79 and returned 10 years later as the manager of the White Sox. In the second year of helm of the White Sox in 1990, he took the White Sox to a second-place finish, an improvement of 25 games, which earned him manager of the year in in, that year of 1990. In 91, he finished in second place again, finishing the season with 87 wins with the Pale Hose. In 92, he came closer to home in his New Jersey. He was he was named the Mets' 14th manager in their history. He replaced interim manager Mike Cubbage, who had replaced Bud Harrison late in the 91 season. The Mets were the first team since 1983 to finish with a losing record. So Torborg was hopefully a welcome addition. Now, we all know that 92 team was a team of high-salary players and overrated over-the-hill free agent players that never, ever really got their act together. And unfortunately, Torborg posted a 70-92 record that year. Disappointing many Mets fans who had such high hopes. The media bashed the team, and the fans booed him loudly at Chase Stadium. Torborg's Mets started at the 93 season at 13-25, and and unfortunately he was fired and replaced by Dallas Green. Now, Torborg would get two managerial jobs, first with the Expos in 2001, finishing fifth with a 47-62 record. And believe it or not, Frank Robinson replaced him after Torborg replaced Robinson 24 years ago as Mint manager. Next, Torborg was named the Florida Marlins manager in 2002, finishing in fourth place, 79-83. In 2003, he was fired and replaced by Jack McKean, who went on to win the World Series with the Marlins. Now, we remember Torborg as a broadcaster, too. He uh, had a pretty good career with the Fox Network, CBS Radio, and the Atlanta Braves on Turner South. Now, he is the the son of former pro wrestler Dale Torborg, known as the demon who donned makeup in the style of Gene Simmons Kiss. Jeff's daughter-in-law is Christy Wolf, also known as Asaya, also, a pro wrestler and female bodybuilder. She and Dale were married in 2000 and have one child. Jeff and his wife live in Mountainside, New Jersey since the middle 90s. Jeff had developed Parkinson's disease and will no longer participate in signing autographs. We wish Jeff well with his health and hope it all is fine right now. All right, you know what time it is now, folks. It's time for Match Trivia and Jeopardy. Uh, we are going to start with the Jeopardy first today. And the first clue is on December 27, 2006, New York Mets signed him to a minor league contract. Second clue is had the game winning hit on July 22nd, 2007, his first major league hit since 2005. You guys think you know the answer? I bet you do. I bet you do. So write them down, lock them in. And we'll be right back at you at the end of the podcast, as always, with the answer to the trivia question. Uh Jeopardy question. Now the trivia question. Who were the two Met players with the most home runs from 1980 to 89? Put on your thinking cap. I'm bet most of you're gonna get this one. So we'll be back later on with the correct answers. But first we're gonna talk about what's going on in the greatest New York Mets baseball group there is on facebook new york mets baseball way of life if you're not a member please do sign up Uh, we also have a twitter presence where we post all things mets not only from the group but about what's going on from other uh, media sources regarding the mets so check us out on twitter new york mets baseball way of life and if you're not a subscriber to this podcast by all means please do so Uh, you'll be updated every time one is uploaded And once things get rolling, hopefully today we'll have baseball news saying we're on our way. We'll have one every day. Uh, What's going on in the group? I'm glad you asked. Uh, It's it's amazing what we do. What we do. Uh, We mentioned on this date in 75, Mets purchased slugger Dave Kingman from the Giants. Now, he was 26 years old, and he was the team's Giants first pick in the initial round in the secondary phase of the 1970 amateur draft. As a lot of fans know, Dave Kingman was quite the pitcher in college, too. He could throw the ball. And on 2014, an online contest sponsored by the MLB Network, the fans chose third baseman David Wright as the face of Major League Baseball. Seven-time All-Star dubbed Captain America due to his heroics last season's WBC narrowly beat out infielder Eric Sogard in a bracket-style competition where the fans voted on Twitter. So the captain was the face of baseball. How about that? Uh, We put up a little picture up in the morim of Carl Earhart, the sign man. You might want to check that out. Heather Gross posted a great article which says, Will Major League Baseball cancel the regular season games? And she also posted a picture again, as we mentioned before, Max Scherzer arriving for negotiations in his Porsche. That Porsche and Max are getting a lot of airplay these days. Also in 2006, on this day, we mentioned that the Mets signed Pedro Feliciano. From 2006 to 2010, Feliciano had a 3.09 ERA and led the majors with 400 games pitched. During this period, Feliciano appeared in more than half of New York's games. His 92 appearances in 2010 are a single-season franchise record. And uh, we actually had a picture of uh, Dave Kingman's uh, player of release or transfer form for the trade uh, today. That's pretty cool. And then we put up an interesting stat. Most consecutive starts made without allowing four plus runs in the last 50 years. Jacob deGrom did it twice with 31. Roger Clemens, 32. Very interesting. And during those 31 starts, deGrom was unbelievable. He's unbelievable every time he takes the mound. Pat Ragazzo, timely article on Elizabeth Ben being hired by the Mets. Uh, Mike Freed wished his daughter Deanna a very happy 21st birthday. So happy birthday, Deanna. And like that, we are friend, fan-friendly. We post everything. We even had an article about Daryl Strawberry and his new legacy as a traveling minister. So good to see Daryl back on track and living the right life. Uh, so happy birthday. We showed a picture of Hansel Robes, <coughs> a video, I should say, which was pretty funny, of him pointing up at the sky like the ball was going to be caught after a hit, and it was a 400-foot bomb that cleared the fence. We also saw that great moment in the 2000 playoffs when Johnny Franco struck out uh, Barry Bond, so you might want to check out that video. Uh, yes, last night, yesterday, I should say, we mentioned that. Duke Snyder passed away at the age of 84. He played one season with the Mets in 129 games. He batted 243 with 14 homers and 45 RBIs. We gave a shout out to Gary Gentry. Uh, Ron Sabota once said his stuff was every bit as good as Seavers. He had a live arm as ball jumped and ran. Gary was this Western guy who just wasn't afraid of anything. Gary was fearless on the mound. He was a kid who wasn't intimidated by anybody. And we also noted that yesterday was. Strawberry Day, National Strawberry Day. And we put a picture of our Strawberry back up there to commemorate the occasion. So once again, that's what's been going on in the group. As always, we have great people posting articles, comments, etc. So please do join the group and please subscribe to the podcast. Now we're going to go back to our Baseball Jeopardy and Trivia Answers. You guys locked them in, right? That's good to see. I always love that when you guys participate. Uh, the trivia question was, <coughs> "Excuse me, beg your pardon," as Bob Murphy used to say. Who were the two Met players who hit the most home runs from nineteen eighty to eighty nine? The correct answers are Dow Strawberry with two hundred and fifteen and Howard Johnson with one hundred and seventeen. Congrats go out to Jason Wench and Kareem Haywood, who were in a virtual tie in answering this one on being the first to submit the correct answers. Uh, yesterday's baseball trivia uh, Jeopardy was. On December 27, 2006, New York signed him to a minor league contract. and the game-winning hit on July 22, 2007, and his first major league hit since 2005. That was, I'm sorry, that was his first major league hit since 2005. Now, the correct response to that is, who is Chip Ambrose? And once again, Kareem Haywood, one of our Wizards of Met Jeopardy, got that one. So as always, that's always fun to do. Uh, participate. And we got some really good guys answering these questions. Well, that's going to wrap it up for today's podcast. So hopefully, um, when we're back, uh hope to be back tomorrow with really good news. If not, we'll try to figure something to put up here, as we always do to keep you folks entertained. Remember when Bob Murphy and Lindsay Nelson said, to keep you better entertained during the ring, ring really. We'll go back to the studios and watch some Benny Hill. Well, we're going to keep you entertained regardless with our next podcast, so tune in and subscribe. We'll be there for you. Again, as always, thanks for your support. Uh, really means the world to me, and we'll talk again soon. Let's go Mets, and let's get this season started.
1: Meet the Mets. Meet the Mets, step right up and greet the Mets, bring your kitties, bring your wife, guaranteed to have the time of your life, because the Mets are really sucking the ball, knocking those home and the baker and the people on the streets. Where do they go? To meet the Mets! Oh, they're hollering, they're cheering, and they're jumping in their seats. Where do they go? To meet the Mets. All the fans are true to the orange and blue, so hurry up and come on down, cause we got ourselves. Meet the Mets. Step right up and greet the Mets. Bring your kitties, bring your wife. Guaranteed you have the time of your life because the Mets are really sucking right. the ball. Knocking those homes